Hi everybody, welcome to the MASHcast for the week of December 17th, 2012. I'm Jarrett, and I'm here with podcast host and staff writer Nick Zelenkevich. Hey, how's everybody doing? Yes, and this week's MASHcast is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we have our first ever MASHcast interview. Uh, two guys from Zala Entertainment were nice enough to uh, to stop by and you know, give us an interview uh, regarding their upcoming game Rush Brothers, and to talk about a couple other things, uh, so uh, one being Mark Chandler, the senior producer for Rush Brothers at Zion Entertainment, and uh, the lead designer, Ian Boswell. Uh, so we're going to go into that interview, and after the interview, we are going to come back and uh, talk for a little bit. So enjoy the interview, and we'll see you at the end. We have two very special guests from Zala Entertainment. Uh, Mark Chandler, who is the senior producer. So how you doing, Mark? Very good. Thanks for having us. And no problem. And also Ian Boswell, who is the lead designer. How you doing, Ian? Hey there. Glad to be here. And I'm doing great. Good, good. I'm very happy to have you guys here and very glad you can be the very first interview on the MASHcast. So let's see. Let's let's get started. Get right into it, I guess. Um, so why don't you guys tell us about yourselves and you know your history in the industry? Sure, uh, I'll go first. Mark Chandler. Uh, I uh, originally got into the industry by uh, having LAN parties in Toronto, and I turned that into a company called Gamescon that was around for about two two and a half years or so, and uh, from that I. Uh, started getting jobs down in San Francisco, worked for a company that helped provide the back end for the Sega Dreamcast. And then from that, I started working with this other company called Zip Davis. And then I moved to Vancouver. When I was at Vancouver, I started working with uh, very close friends of mine, the uh, guys that uh, you know founded Epic Games, Mark Rain and Tim Sweeney. And I worked with them for a year or so, and I managed their Make Something Unreal contest. And then after that, it was just a lot of you know, contracting advisor positions uh, over the years. And uh, when the last Make Something Unreal contest came around in 2009, I decided, well, you know, I'd like to actually do something this time. So I got together with uh, a friend of mine that I had met during my tenure at Epic Games, and we created this mod called Prometheus. And uh, we had won first place in phase two, second place in phase three, second place in phase four, and then in the grand finals, we came in fourth place. And then we started working on uh, turning that into a full game, but uh, it, it was it was a little too difficult, and publishing money was hard to find and things like that. And so I ended up doing some other things uh, over the past year. 
And then uh, I was approached by Xyla to come on board to be an advisor for them to help them with their marketing strategy as well as strategic relationships. And with that, they just, they asked me whether or not I wanted to help do producing. So I took that role on, and uh, here we are now. Okay. Uh, you've been about around the block for a little bit. <laughs> Quite a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, anybody, I guess, who worked with Mark Rain, especially in the early days. It's, uh... <laughs> I met Mark Rain, I guess, about 15 years ago, and I met him at E3 back in 1996, and we had this discussion about how I just got DSL at my house in Toronto. And he was like, what? You got DSL? And then I found out that he actually lived north of me only by like 20 miles, and he couldn't get DSL up there. And then uh, me and my uh, twin brother would start to go and visit Mark, and then he'd let us play Unreal, and uh, we got to know all the other guys. And then I ended up putting on this big LAN party called Respawn, and then Mark came, and he brought Cliffy B with him, and he also brought James Smalls, who was the owner of Digital Extremes, uh, one of the other companies that made Unreal. It was two companies that made Unreal. And they brought it, and they actually showed it off to... You know, the we had about 300 people there. So so we'd bring people downstairs and then let them play Unreal multiplayer. And uh, it was pretty good. It was pretty fun. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm, you're talking about Unreal. I'm a huge Unreal fan. Huge Unreal Tournament fan. Like, I can't even count the amount of hours I've, I've played in Unreal Tournament. Well, I'm talking about Unreal, the first one. But uh. then Unreal Tournament did come out. And when I had my company GamesCon going, Mark Rain actually showed up. And he brought the very first public viewing of Unreal Tournament itself. And uh, another friend of mine who was director of developer relations at 3D Effects at the time, Brian Bruning, he actually brought the very first Voodoo 3 also. And they slapped them together in the same machine. And, you know, we had a bunch of press there also. We had a Johnny Wilson from Computer Gaming World. And a lot of people got to experience it for the very first time. Wow, that is really awesome. And if I don't stop myself, I will continue to talk about that. <laughs> so, oh, God, we played Unreal Tournament nonstop. Oh, loved that game. Loved it, loved it, loved it. It is truly a classic. Oh, what about you, Ian? Uh, what's your experience in the industry? Well, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an oddball, but it's a lot shorter than uh, Mark's story. I've actually only been making games for profit since 2005, though I, I started making like Amiga games when I was like eight years old, you know, back in the early 80s. And uh, I've been sort of building games uh, just for as a hobby for a while. Um, but what ended up ultimately happening to me was after the Amiga, you know, I started modding uh, Mac games and playing around with them and, and making my own. And uh, the Mac game market was it was pretty small. There were, there were like two main companies, Bungie and Ambrosia, that were primarily, you know, aiming for that market. And we'd, we'd sometimes, you know, chat a lot like online. Like we had our own little Mac, uh, you know, live chat room that game developers for Mac would, you know, chat around on. And eventually I did buy a PC. Uh, then I, you know, got my degrees and uh, master's degrees in computer science and psychology. And I was dead set on becoming, for some reason, a therapist. Um, I specialized in compulsions. Uh, and uh, when I heard about a, a study that was going on in Korea that the Korean government was paying for to you know study game addiction, I was like, oh yeah, I want to go out there and learn about it because game addiction was a big problem, and you know they wanted to to look at it as a, as a serious issue. It was actually a compulsive behavior, you know, same symptoms as addiction. And so I went out there, did some studies for a couple of years, and uh, when somebody like caught that information on my resume that I you know was, was uh, had been studying game addiction for a year and a half. Uh, suddenly game development companies were calling me up 
<laughs> so that was interesting. Uh, start, started with a little bit of you know quality assurance stuff with NCSoft. Uh, got got my hands dirty in like Lineage 2 and stuff like that. And, and then it just one thing led to another, hopped around some different companies. And then this big iPhone gold rush happened. And that's how I came to know these guys at Xyla. And I've been working with them for about like three and a half years now maybe more. Uh, so it's been quite some time, but yeah, we've, we've made a lot of iPhone games under various different company names and they've all been, been quite good. So yeah. <laughs> were, were the game companies interested in your psycho psychological aspect because they wanted to, I guess, sort of use your knowledge of what can contribute to game addiction to sort of make your games more addictive or was this more like, we don't want our games to be like killing people. So we're going to, we kind of want to keep them within like a realm of normalcy. Well, in the case of like NCSoft, it was, you know, like, like we sort of came up with the idea of, you know, putting a little timer on there and saying, you know, you've been playing for X amount of hours and having in the settings options to like cut the game off after a few hours of play and, you know, think, give, give the players more options to time and pace themselves. We did it almost in, in a therapeutic sense and a self-help sort of sense. I, I like to use applied rational mode of behavioral therapy. So we tried to instill that in the game. But while we were, you know, working on these things, while I was just consulting on, you know, how to make the games less addicting, I also started offering them my ideas on how to make the games more fun all around and, and, you know, work better and work more efficiently and stuff. And they realized, oh, well, you know, you should be in a director position. And suddenly I wasn't a, a you know, I wasn't a consultant anymore. I was a game developer <laughs> and I, I haven't uh, turned back since. I love it. So, yeah. <laughs> I actually remember when that message for Guild Wars started showing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I that was something carried over from uh, from the stuff we, you know, NCSoft was doing, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a huge Guild Wars player. And I gotta be honest with you, I used to ignore it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you know, I was drinking fluid, so it was okay. You know, <laughs> there, there was no no uh, danger there. Uh, I, so I just want to tell one really quick, funny story. Sure. Uh, and that is uh, when I had GamesCon going, uh, this was back in like 2000, and I was playing uh, Dungeon Keeper. You know, uh, and Peter Molyneux was on my advisory board helping, uh, you know, my advisory board for Gamescom was like Peter Molyneux and John Romero and Scott Miller and uh, Ed Fries from Microsoft and Chris Taylor and a bunch of these huge guys that just gave me their time, free time. You know, it was unbelievable what these guys did. But anyways, one night I'm playing Dungeon Keeper one or two. I can't remember which one it was at the time. And I'm playing it and it's like two or three o'clock in the morning. And all and like you know, uh, Dungeon Keeper had like the dungeon advisor voice. You know, this kind of creepy older voice guy that would like say things and stuff like that. Your minions are blah blah blah. And anyways, I'm playing away, and then all I hear is something along the lines of, "In a room close to you, there's this rectangular piece of furniture that, when you are close to it and you lie on it, it rebuilds your stamina." And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and I'm like, I, I'm positive I made that up. There's no way at all. The game just told me to go to bed. <laughs> and anyways, and then you know, I decide to like take a look at the whole sound file, and it was just an MP3 format. And then I find all these other things in there that were like triggered by different times and stuff like that. And finally, you know, by playing it for like another hour or so. The, the voice was was like saying to me, seriously, it's late. You should be going to bed now. It was just amazing when, I, when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's really clever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm surprised more games don't have something like that because that would just be hilarious. Mm -hmm. And I'd probably hear it all the time. 
<laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't you guys tell us about uh, Xyla, you know, how, how things got started with that. Uh, well, you want me to start with that? Uh, I mean, yep. you know, we basically, you know, we, we'd come out of building a ton of mobile games, lots of mobile games. And we were like, mobile games are fun. And I, you know, up until then, I'd also been developing things like, you know, 3DS and, and DS games and stuff like that. Well, not, not 3DS, that hadn't come out yet, but, you know, Nintendo DS games and, and uh, Game Boy Advance titles. And I, I was just so tired of working in those small resolutions. And, and Servan was getting a little fed up with how when you put a game on the, you know, the app store, it's almost like gambling. You don't, it's like buying a lottery ticket. You don't know if it's going to pick up or not. It's just, it gets thrown into a sea of apps. And even though you, you know, you might advertise it within your apps and other people's apps and do cross promotion, you know, you have no idea if it's going to take off or not. So we, we decided, you know, let's, let's try to aim for, you know, PC, Mac, and eventually console. And, you know, we'd heard about the Ouya thing coming out as well. And we, we wanted to target that because that seemed like a cool idea because, you know, all, all this under one big sort of roof could be done in unity. So, we said, well, let's try making a PC slash Mac game in Unity and see what goes from there. And yeah, that's that's how it started. And then then we had to come up with an idea. And you know, the idea for this game, do you want me to go into that? Uh, just sort of sort of came from modding. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. If you if you want to go deeper into you know okay. how you actually got the idea for Rush Brothers. Well, uh, one thing one thing I like to do on the side while I was making iPhone games is, you know, I, I was always playing around in Unreal Engine and uh, Source Engine, and I made this uh, this this mod for Portal Two where the co-op robots instead of playing together would race against each other, and it still is to this day the most popularly downloaded Portal Two map on the the Steam Workshop because people like that competitive nature that it you know brings out, and at the end you get to crush the loser, and that's very satisfying as well. And so we said, well, let's let's turn this into a fully fleshed out game just by itself, because that alone, you know, people were playing this one room map hundreds of times in a row until finally somebody rage quit and gave up. And it was like, this is really fun. Just mirror the rooms, have them play through an identical uh, you know, match. And that was inspired sort of like by the movie The Wizard, where, you know, I, as a kid, I was really affected by that because I got to see them playing, you know, Mario Brothers three side by side. And I was like, I want to do that. And. Yeah, you know, I'd have little tournaments where like I'd set two TVs up and we'd plug two NESs in and, and play games side by side. But this is just sort of an evolution of that childhood idea into, uh, you know, a big play space. And then then we've evolved that from a mod into now it is a, a standalone game. And we threw in the music feature, too. And that was that was just a really cool idea. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, actually, yeah, we were, we were going to talk about the music. Uh, actually, Nick, I know you had a question about his, you know, the musical influences. Well, so. I, I saw you did the uh, the Red Trees mod for Portal. Um, and I saw that the the music was very integral into that. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering, did you did you compose the music for all of that, or uh, that was actually that was actually done by a uh, royalty free musician. Um, I think he goes, but it's it's a service called Emuse, and the, the the particular artist was called the Hamster Alliance. Okay. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, because no, because I, I just I just thought it was again having seen that, and then also Rush Brothers, as far as how how integral music was to all of that, it it just it it. It, I, it was very, it, it was very, I guess, telling to sort of see how the, the two works kind of were reflective of each other in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Red Trees was a fun. It was a fun puzzle to make because it was simple. It was just about you know doing with two different dimensions that are interwoven into each other, and then at the end, the game literally crashes. Yes. I wanted to see. I wanted to, that was it was something I wanted to have happen. It's like the game's over now. I don't want you to go back to the title screen. I want it to go to your desktop. You know, I wanted yeah. you to feel that it, it it adds a nice impact to the end. I think. Well, I, I I like too just the contrast of the two I guess rooms for for what it was as mm -hmm. the one being very stark white 
and it almost sort of foreshadows at the end when it's just the tree and the whiteness. I thought it was very it was very artistic for a portal mod. Yeah, well, that's that's something I like to do is I like to have a, that level of art in there that you know it's it's it lets you sort of interpret it and analyze it and go about it from. Well, again, I, I you know I, I go back to my psychology background. I like to have things that play with your cognitive perception of how you're viewing the game and what is what does it really mean to you as a person as well. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, I did have one other question about Xyla in particular. And I, when I was looking at uh, the website, I saw it says you guys are focused on intelligent gamers. You know, you didn't really say mass market or casual gamers or hardcore gamers, but you said intelligent gamers. And I just want to see how are you focusing on, I guess, that specific you know, type of gamer, somebody who actually, you know, wants a challenge. Well, I, th- I think the truth is we think of every gamer as intelligent. I think every gamer is. It doesn't matter if you're you know, a hardcore you know, frat boy who likes to play Call of Duty and that's about it. I, I think that they like to have a level of stimulation that you know, you're, not, you're not getting out of a lot of you know, the, the titles today, which fill your screen with all these instructions and information and telling you what to do when you can very simply teach a player how to play without verbal communication, without, you know, on-screen text, with just, you know, put the controller in their hand and they figure it out. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, four years old or 80 years old, you can pick this up and just play it immediately. And it's, it's, it's designed that way. And all our games are built that way, basically. Oh, good. <laughs> that, I actually can appreciate, you know, a developer actually trusting the gamer to figure it out. Uh, because, like, for example, I've been playing the new Hitman, which is actually, it's a great game. I like it a lot. But one thing that bothers me is every time like you do an action against somebody, like let's say you you, you know you kill somebody and you start dragging their hand, all of a sudden all these text boxes appear with you know okay press this button to do this, press this button to go over here, press this button to throw him in the trash can, as opposed to kind of just like you know let me figure it out, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. get there and then pressing an action button, and it, I don't know. It kind of, you know, when, you all, when you're constantly getting those tutorial boxes and things like that, it, it almost, I'm not going to say it ruins the experience, but it kind of drains it down. Yeah. You know? like, like, if you look at how, like, Portal plays out, it starts off very simply. You don't get a Portal gun outright. You just get a box and a button. And, you know, they, they trust you enough to figure things out one step at a time. Um, and, and I like that. You know, I liked that about the game. Uh, and, and, I, and that's what I kind of want to continue doing with our titles in the future is, you know, we, we don't have to have massive tutorials or manuals or anything you have to read or learn. You just, you, through perception alone, it guides you through and you, and learning is very fun. That's something I've, I've, I've learned from working in the games industry is people really love to learn when it's through play. And, you know, that's, that's what Rush Brothers is all about. It's teaching and learning together because in the really hard levels, like you mentioned, the, the super ultra difficult ones, because it's a split screen game and there's two people playing either online or on the couch, uh, you're learning together how to beat the stage. So even though you might be competing because you're watching the other, you know, other player play, if they get hit by a trap or something, you'll know that's going to be coming up for you. And so you'll avoid it and vice versa. Then they'll see you get hit by something and learn from that as well so it's collective you know learning together and it's very fun that way i noticed i I noticed that especially the third level i mean there's a lot of stuff that comes at you that the first time you're going through it's gonna hit you because you just don't know that it's there and so you're, you're saying then fundamentally it's almost like it's designed for you to watch the other guy make the mistake first so you can come through and then presumably not have to learn from your own mistakes because you're learning from his 
Yeah, we all we all screen look. Let's face it. Everyone who's ever played a split screen game in the same room with somebody, you screen look. It's a it's a strategy. It's a method for telling where they are. And a lot of people say, "Oh, that's not not very fun. That's not very fair." But when when we first des, you know decided on the core concept of Rush Brothers, just like the portal mod, you can screen look. There's a big window between both chambers, and you can always hit tab and see where your opponent is in the portal mod. So with this. You know, you've got that split screen. You're always able to see where they are and what they're doing, and it's it's just it's designed around that, literally. So, so yeah. do you feel do you feel like we're going to be losing something then with like the Wii U with like the asynchronous gameplay because you now have a screen that only certain people can see? Do you feel there's almost a loss of a certain type of gameplay because we're now able to actually segment viewers in the, in that direction? I'm really, uh, you know, I'm I'm really excited about the kinds of things that, that brings actually because. The technology of the Wii U allows you to have your own screen, but it also allows you to look up and see the TV screen. So you still have that. It's just been extended now to a higher resolution and put into your hands, really. Um, it does feel a bit gimmicky at times, I'll admit, but I do actually like the overall feel of the Wii U. I like the idea of what you can do with it. And if I did port this to, to, to the Wii U at some point for some reason, I could imagine, you know, like one player being able to see the screen and the other, they're, you know, playing on their controller and you're, you're sort of... I guess you'd have to look over at your friend's controller in their lap if you were wanting to cheat and you know look at their screen. Otherwise, we'd have to split screen both a TV and one player gets the screen all to himself if he wants. <laughs> you know. Well, if yeah. they were playing online against each other, then on the main screen you'd be playing your game, but down in your hands you'd be able to see what the other person is seeing actually, and then vice versa go. for that person. And there you go. We're, we're still trying to figure – we're talking to Nintendo, and we're still trying to figure out, you know, what is it that we could do on that screen, you know? And ideas that we've thrown out, and none of this is written in stone or anything like that yet, is like, why can't we just have, like, you know, you can create a trap right then and there. You see the guys running right there, and you can just, like, you know – hit something on your keypad and suddenly it just kind of like screws them over right then and there. And of course he can do that to you too. Yeah. 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 Like, like the old tabletop gaming, basically the guy with the controller in his hands that, you know, has a screen on, it's able to play like a dungeon master type role and, you know, surprise both players as they race through. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of opportunities with that, that we haven't really explored yet, but we could definitely look into. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, with your approach on not, I guess hand holding the gamers because I think that whole that whole I guess fad or I'm not gonna call it a fad but that whole process came through when I think well publishers and other game companies were trying to reach farther out to I don't necessarily want to say casual gamers because to me a casual gamer is just somebody who doesn't play all the time but they're still a gamer but maybe people who don't necessarily play games all the time. Uh, or play games at all, I should say. Like, I guess the audience that the iPhone games and the Android games really captured, or even the Wii originally captured. Are you worried about shunning those people away because, you know, it's... Because a, a, a lot of people like that really won't, you know, take the time to learn a game. Well, that's that's part of the, the thing, is that it's 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 intuitive enough that it's instant learned you don't have to be you don't have to take an effort i'm not expecting the user to actually go to an effort higher than pressing one or two buttons and then left or right on the d-pad i'm not going to be expecting him to do anything else outside of that those those very simple actions with their hands and the combinations thereof so you know the way the way that you approach it if you look at like how valve looks at you know 
design problems when they're doing their quality assurance testing, for instance. Uh, if the player feels stuck and they don't know what they're doing, and they, they have some really bad players come in and try, and you know they, they, they can't get past some sections, and they're like, okay, stick an arrow there. You, know, you don't have to put a dialog box saying, hey, buddy, look over to the left. If you just put an arrow there, they'll start going you know, towards the left. So it's, it's not a problem of you know, hand-holding and removing the hand-holding. It's a part of finding other ways to augment not having a text pop up and tell you what to do. It's, it's about you know, through the, what you see on the screen, where you're at it at any time. You know, whenever I'm developed, well, I'm, yeah, I'm the lead level designer on this whole project, and every single level has been built with split screen as the priority. And what you see to the left of the screen and to the right of the screen is more than what you'd see if you were doing like, you know, like full screen, because you see the top of the screen as well. The top of the screen is almost like completely ignored because I'm worrying about what you're seeing to the left and the right as well as on the other player screens, middle, left, and right. And all of that's available to you visually anytime you're, you know, during play. So at any point in the level, if you see something to the right that's saying you should probably start going left now, you know, it'll be an arrow pointing to the left. It won't be, you know, a dialogue box, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I'd mm-hmm. say that's acceptable. That's fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, another question I had in regards to, I guess, platform games in general, uh, because Rush Brothers is definitely, you know, a platformer. Uh, platformers, you always have to have tight controls. I think it's one of the most important things about a platform game. Like, I think one of the best examples of tight controls in a platformer is Super Meat Boy or even Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there were some parts uh, during the demo when I was playing where I was like, man, I kind of wish I had more control or this, this, these controls are a little bit tighter. But then I thought to myself, well, is it, is it the problem? Is the, are the controls the actual problem? Or is it just me not adjusting to the way the game is supposed to be played? So, yeah. I, you know, as I was gonna say, as a developer, how do you know the difference between you know, oh, my controls aren't tight enough, and players just not you know adjusting properly to the game? Well, it's it we we do it through testing. We tested a lot of different people, a lot of different age groups. You know, we've we've had a lot of people just come in, sit down with the controller. I mean, at at Comic Con, for instance, we had hundreds of people come in and, and play the game. I'm sure those those game controllers are covered in germs by now. But you know, they they just came in, played it, you know, and and, and I wanted to see like how they how they reacted. And every single time, you know, they got it. They figured it out. They were able to interpret it. And to me that was a positive. So even though, you know, the controls might feel a bit what some people call flighty or or loose, we have we have actually tightened them up recently. We have improved them a little bit so that they are a bit more one to one than they were. But Part of the, the way that control is designed in Rush Brothers is we didn't want it to feel like a Meat Boy clone. We didn't want it to feel like a, a Knight clone or a Mega Man X clone. We wanted it to feel something unique about it, and that was that you have a choice, which is you can either have control or you can have speed. So the faster you go, the less control you really get out of that. And so if you're like sliding, you know, you could end up sliding into some spikes, but you know, the gains for that would be you might be able to get ahead of your opponent. And this makes for the race being a lot more tight neck and neck and you have a lot more back and forth. Uh, and, and, you know, we've, 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 it's a bunch of math and values that we played with for a while. But, you know, once we, once we got to the right values, players had a nice back and forth level. And that's what we wanted. We wanted that aggressive back and forth, even on two people who had different skill levels racing against each other. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, good. Uh, actually, we, <laughs> you brought up, you know, the germs on the controllers that, <laughs> reminded me of uh, I had an interview with uh, one of the developers for Firefall uh, a couple, you know, back at uh, PAX 
And when I go up to the booth to do the interview, he has a huge vat of hand sanitizer <laughs> with him because, you know, of all the different people that you get involved with. I'm like, man, that's a really good idea. And I really wish I would have thought about that. <laughs> yeah, we had like, yeah, we had like 10 bottles of hand sanitizer on the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's one of those things. Like, actually, I, I think it was like uh, PAX 12, 2011. I came back and I was sick as a dog. Never again. I carry hands. Whenever, now when I go to a convention, I always carry hands and test with me. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't catch a cold. I got sneezed on so many times, but amazingly I didn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I guess uh, more about Rush Brothers. Um, it, you know, the, well, I guess the main part of the game is, well, I shouldn't say I guess, the main part of the game is the music that goes uh, with with the game and how each level kind of adjusts to it. And so, you know, you know I, you'll see different, you'll see platforms moving up and down to the beat. Like I noticed, uh, I think it was at the, fr- I think it was the first level in the demo where the speakers were pulsing like this, these blue waves and the blue waves were actually pushing me away. Like once I, if I sat there for a second, I would notice the blue waves were pushing me away. And then of course, like, you know, the, the third level with the spikes, depending on the tempo of the track, the spikes will come out faster um, when, when they fired at you. Uh, but those were really, really the only things that I saw. I just wanted to see, know if there were any additional things that you were planning on putting into the game or are already in, but we just didn't see them because we only saw the demo. Yeah, the, yeah, the demo, the dim, demo really couldn't showcase everything because we we tried to gradually, you know, introduce the player to these new objects as we put them in. So, you know, there's there's bouncing fireballs, there's cannons, there's turrets that fire, you know, shots at you. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that we actually have all across the levels um, in different types of forms, usually in th- just things that move up and down. But we also have some really cool things. I don't really want to spoil, but um, basically things that sort of peel back. Uh, some sections of the, of the ground and stuff, and they're they're all like you know they they'd kill you and they'd be dangerous. So it gets pretty interesting and intense, and you can see how the music affects the levels more and more through through you, uh, as you play. And I think the demo it had a nice sampling of levels. It tried to show a sort of medium difficulty stage and then an easy stage, and you know it was, it was a nice mixture of things to sort of introduce you to play. But yeah, it didn't it didn't showcase all the features for sure. Yeah. Okay. But with the multiplayer demo we're going to be releasing this week, we're actually adding an additional two levels to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, so you'll have you'll have even more stuff to play, and trust me, it'll be great. Oh, <laughs> uh, great. Actually, that was one of my questions: was uh, were you guys planning to do online multiplayer? But I'm assuming the the multiplayer demo is online multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Yes, yes. The online demo, and I, I know one of the levels, and if you're if you're curious about more things, I know one of the levels is going to have a lightning field and some cool piston things, and it was spikes on them. So, Ooh. yeah, you have that to look forward to. <laughs> that sounds very interesting, <laughs> especially with the music that I was putting on. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'll, yeah, it, it, it was a, a, it was really a treat to go from like you know you know with the the songs that come with the game or with the demo. Then I went to you know some hip hop, or I went to some like some metal, and then I go to like drum and bass. You know, mm-hmm. and that was it. it was and it, it, a lot of replay value with that. Mm-hmm. Even if you just want to, uh, you know, test your limits, because I know, uh, like a game like Beat Hazard, where there were, a lot, you know, there were in in different forums, people were like, "Well, this is the hardest song to play in Beat Hazard," and then you go play that song, and then you mm-hmm. beat it, and they're like, "No, this is the hardest song to play in Beat Hazard." So I kind of, I can kind of see the same thing happening uh, with this game. And it almost it kind of building the community around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah. We'd eventually like to get some something in there where you can 
talk to the other player or, or, or show the other player what song you plan to be playing with. And then, you know, you can either try to get the song or play on the same song. But uh, we're still working out the, that exactly. But <laughs> but for now, it's, you know, it's free for all. You can change the songs on the fly and it'll it'll change the, the beat. So, yeah, if you get to a really hard part and you find it to be impossibly hard, you can just hit the next track button or the, the I think it's one of the bumpers on the controller and change the track to something slower. <laughs> I did see that, but my pride wouldn't let me. Let <laughs> <laughs> me do it. Uh, so, in terms of uh, online, um, are there any plans to be able to use other players' ghost data? Um, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure on that. I I would like to be able to share it because it is shareable. You can copy it. So I don't know. We'll see. I think that would be possible. So you could have a a race against somebody else who's you know got like the best time on your Steam list or whatever. Um, if we ever, you know, if, if we do finally get greenlit on Steam and we get access to the Steamworks package and we see what all we'll be able to do with it, if we can, you know, send ghost data from like your friends list, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, now the the third level of the demo was definitely the hardest. I, I think Nick can agree with me. It was definitely a, a mm-hmm. challenge. Um, the, the thing about the level is, you know, you never you see the spikes, you know, and you really, you, you know, you know, don't touch the spikes. <laughs> you're not supposed to touch the spikes but you know the first time one of the spikes flew at me I was like whoa that's you know I didn't expect it and then more and more spikes start to fly at you and it's not in sequential order you know you jump mm-hmm. over one and the one after that you know flies up and hits you and it, it, it the level was almost punishing but it was awesome like I loved that about that level and when I got to a point because you know before halfway through the level i started expecting the unexpected like as i'm running toward a group of spikes i'm like i want you know i bet this is going to be the one that flies up or flies you know to the left so there was a, a great sense of satisfaction i had from being able to determine that and i just want to know in, in later levels you know after that is that is that going to be a constant theme in the game are we going to constantly constantly see you know a lot of trial and error uh with this yeah, I'd say more so with the puzzle-themed levels than just the things that jump out at you, because things just jumping out at you kind of gets old after a while. But if it's music-based and it's jumping at you, then it's a bit different. We have a bit more of that coming up too. But I, I, I really like the idea of you know, you, f- you know, if you're playing it single player or you're racing against a ghost, it gets kind of frustrating if you, you know, if you die over and over again in a game. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to make things feel like it was incentivized. We put a lot of checkpoints in, so death isn't a huge punishment. But even better, when you're playing against another player and you see them, you know, get ahead of you, that's the motivating factor to not get frustrated, not get tired with it, keep keep on pushing through. So yeah, we get we get pretty uh, intense with the the stuff that'll surprise you and kill you <laughs> and mislead you like uh my favorite my my favorite level is um i don't know if it'll be like one of the end levels of the game but you know here's here's a pro tip for everybody listening if they want a bit of a hint on how to beat the level easier uh there's going to be a bunch of arrows that are going to be pointing to the right saying to go right and if you go right it kills you so <laughs> <laughs> you were just saying though that you should always pay attention to the arrows that you know that they're there as an intentional sign to make sure you're going in the right way so you're already saying in the later levels you're already sort of turning on the player only, in that regard it's it's only one particular level i think it's the last one so it, it was just a bit it, we wanted to surprise you because by then you're used to following the arrows you trust the arrows and then we just sort of you know <laughs> slap you so <laughs> it's a, it's it's a slap of love though thanks for playing yes. the game that's mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of what that was <laughs> But I heard yeah. you say that there are, are puzzle-based levels. 
Yeah, yeah, we have levels where we have to roll like uh, these these big physics objects around and push blocks and and you know line things up. So we also have big explorational levels where you have to find a, a hidden key that's somewhere in the map, and you know, you can have to explore around and find it. Um, and there's there's several where you have to find multiple keys. So it, it, we have levels that are. Have you, have you ever played Night by any chance? The, the little platforming game. Um, Night? It, I don't believe so. No. Okay, that's too bad. It, it's, it's sort of inspired by like Shadow of the Colossus, kind of. But instead of like fighting big things, you just find stuff hidden throughout a stage. And I wanted to do levels that felt kind of like that, like those old collectathon games, but without feeling, you know, really like too old-fashioned. I wanted to bring new ideas into them too. So, yeah, you got you have a nice mix of stages. There's explorational stages, racing stages, stages where things are going to be chasing after you. Uh, everybody loves those, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and you know, and then of course puzzle stages. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So great. That actually makes it sound better because I was just I was very content with it being a speed running game where your objective was to you know beat your opponent mm-hmm. or even beat yourself with your own time. But you're saying that you know that some levels you're gonna need to find stuff, some levels you're gonna need to figure out puzzles. That this actually sounds really awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> more so something. Yeah. Something else that we're planning on doing also uh, after we've released is we have these levels made and we have all these traps and we have everything else in it. And we're now just thinking up, how can we really, really utilize what we've built already and just change some code and create a total different game mechanic experience? And when I used to run the Make Something Unreal contest at Epic Games, there was this one guy who would always create these mutators for like Unreal Tournament 2003. And it was just like little tiny sections of code, like 200K. And it would just totally change the game. And, uh, you know, it's just through remembering that, that, you know, I started talking with the rest of the team. And it's like, let's think of other things we can do. We don't necessarily have to have racing. We could have like, oh, you have to find a certain amount of items before you can exit the li- uh, the level, or et cetera, et cetera. So we're tossing around all these other different ideas. We're going to rapid prototype them. We'll test them out, and if they look good, we're just going to start releasing these things. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. so that's extending, I guess, the gameplay even further. So yeah, yeah, we we definitely plan to release more types of like basically game modes in the future, as well as you know, uh, more, more levels all outright because it's very simple for us to build them. And, you know, we want to be able to just crank out tons of level packs and just give those out to people so they can, you know, keep having fun and uh, enjoy the experience. Eventually, you know, some, at some point it'll take some time, but we'd like to do a level editor eventually with Steam workshop integration. So users themselves can submit stages, but I think we're a little, a little, a few months off from that, that actually getting to be made. <laughs> oh, okay. Actually, so, that, was, that was another one of my questions. If you guys are going to do a level, uh, you know, a level designer, because that this a game like this is definitely something that, you know, would benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could definitely pull it off. Mm-hmm. Great. And now the the uh, the map packs or the, the mutator packs, I guess I'll call them for now, uh, the game modes that you were talking about, are you planning on re- releasing them as paid DLC or is it just a bonus for the players that you know are just purchased the game already? I'll, I'll let Mark answer that. I, I would say free, but I don't know if he wants to. <laughs> I, I would like to see them be free also because they're just such simple, small things that we can do that extend the gameplay so greatly that we could just be attracting a huge 
other audience that wasn't playing it because they were thinking it was a racing game. And then suddenly they see it's this kind of like scavenger hunt game, but you're racing still, but it's no longer from A to B. It's going from like A to D to E to, you know, Z to N, and then, you know, all these other different ways. And, every, you know, you're instead of running like, you know, from A to B linearly, you're having to like, you know, go all these different areas around the maps and stuff like that. So, uh, it's not going to be, it'll be, you know, we have to code this and test it, make sure it doesn't break and things like that. But, you know, that's just one example of things that we could be doing. And, uh, you know, uh, we really take inspiration from some uh, other developers out there. A perfect example is uh, the guys at Trendy Entertainment that uh, made Dungeon Defenders. Um, every time I start up Steam, it's downloading a patch for them. Every time. And it's not even like I've bought DLC. And it's the same thing with the game Magicka also. Every time I turn it on, it's like downloading something new. And they've just kind of gone and implemented some new, new type of game mechanic in there. Or, you know, maybe added a little extra map or something like that. And, you know, to me, that's why these games are so unbelievably successful. Because they're just constantly building their audience more and more. Yeah, games games that are treated like services, like this is an old Gabe Newell quote, but yeah, games that are treated like services are the ones that tend to do better over time because it's not a released product you put on a shelf and you say, done. Uh, it's the ones that roll and evolve over time, and we definitely want to do that with Rush Brothers as well. I mean, you know, we, we at one point when we were building it, we had a, a space shooter type concept that we were building within the game where you were literally in ships instead of running around. You know, we could we could you know, rebuild stages that involve that as well as other things very easily just incorporate the code and stuff. So there's a lot of cool ideas that will allow us to keep adding in these patches and content. And we'd like to give it to our users for free. And, you know, if you pair something like that with a sale, because, you know, people will come into the game, see what's new about it. And, oh, I should buy a copy for my friend. And, oh, look, you know, it's it's on sale. That's a crazy way to spread the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and well. that's a perfect example of that last night. Uh, uh, a friend, I bought a, a copy of Torchlight 2 for a friend of mine yeah, mm -hmm. because it was on sale. And, you know, uh, I told him about it and how much I was loving it. And he goes, yeah, I'm thinking about getting it. And then I just happened to have a Gamefly account. So I just like went and bought it right then and there. And I'm like, there you go. Merry Christmas. Here's a key for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think Steam has a lot to do with the, the whole sharing thing now. How that became mm -hmm. so big? Because I know I've definitely, I, I've definitely bought a lot of games for friends simply because I had it, and they didn't. I wanted somebody to play with, but mm -hmm. you know, if I had to actually go to a store and buy it, I probably would be like, eh, you can get it later. <laughs> you know, I suppose being able to get on Steam, get on Steam, two minutes, bam, gift for friend, and then send it to him like, hey, get on, you know, Castle Crashers or get on Orcs Must Die, <laughs> and play this with me. Yeah, I love the way how they sell the four packs now in Steam also. You know, I think that's absolutely awesome. Yeah. Now, actually, another question uh, regarding, I guess, victory conditions. Because I saw in the Game Informer interview mm -hmm. that, you know, getting to the end of the stage isn't necessarily how you win. And also, you don't always have to compete with I guess, the other person, you know, your, I, guess, I wouldn't say they're your opponent, but, you know, the other player that you're playing with. That, you know, you can do like a co-op type of thing to complete a level or you can race and, you know, whoever wins wins. But there's other ways to set victory conditions. And I just, you know, we wanted to see if you can elaborate on that. 
Well, the the thing about the victory condition is that we found that a lot of players like to make up the rules while they're playing rather than do it before the play. Because if you do it, it interrupts the flow. You know, if you're in a menu system, like I know everybody, everybody who's ever played Smash Brothers, they always play on stock, but for some reason, always defaults to time. So whenever you play Smash Brothers, the first thing you have to do is go into the menu and pick stock. Imagine if when you started playing the game, you could just start fighting and then choose the rules right there on the fly. That, you know, that's basically what Rush Brothers is trying to do is you can play it as a co-op game in a way and where you're both looking at each other's screens and helping each other through the stage and talking back and forth and communicating and be like, hey, man, be sure to avoid those spikes. And, you know, you might teach somebody how to play a stage, for instance. We've seen people actually do that. It happens very, very common because humans have this nature, this, this, this sort of nurturing nature about them where they want to instruct and help and teach somebody who's way behind or losing. And when you're, when you, you know, when you've reached the finish line, you know, you don't outright kill the other player, you know, instantly win. you can sit there and coach them and help them through and then help them to pass the finish line too. Or you can be a big jerk and hit the big button and, and finish them off. It's your choice. That's, that's a real moral choice system right there. You can either really rub in your victory or you can, you know, you can, you know, talk to the other person and, and help them to see it through or, or just watch them as they try and struggle and laugh at them. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure the way me and my friends play, it'll be a uh, rub-it-in situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, you want to get past that? No, you just, no, you die and I'll win. <laughs> I, I yeah. don't even know why we're friends if we constantly do that to each other. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we had a, you know, it, it's kind of clear that you, you know, you're, uh, you take some... Uh, some examples from other from other games. I shouldn't say you take some examples, but you're paying homage to other platformers. Like I think it was in the second stage that it's it's clearly like you know kind of a Mario homage. Yeah, it's, it's a complete it's a complete homage to worlds one one and one two, complete with the warp zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you know, like you know, even though I guess the full buildings aren't there, but the way they're shaped, I'm like, okay, yeah, I totally know where this is from. So, mm-hmm. what other games are there? Any other games that you kind of pay homage to? Um, I, I don't think there's anything else in particular that's that's you know particularly like lifting an idea from an, from another platformer outright and just copying the stage you know in full. Um, I, I can't really think of anything else really that we're we're paying homage to. There's a, there's you know a few things that kind of reminded me of Sonic the Hedgehog, but it wasn't like you know outright mimicry. It was th- that that's pretty much the only level we wanted to do like that because it was it was sort of in the same spirit of how Braid has one level that's modeled after the original Donkey Kong. I was like, you know, it'd be really cool to do a level. It's, you know, just sort of a, a tribute to, to, to Shiggy. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You, you said you've been talking to Nintendo. Um, have they played the level and what do they think about it? Um, I just reached out to their, uh, you know, account managers, biz dev people there and they, you know, they liked it. You know, it's really up to us to, you know, establish a relationship with Nintendo and get them interested in the game. Um, but the this uh, person that I was talking to, he said, it looks really good. And he goes, I think it would fit really well over here. And he goes, it's a common misconception that we don't want platformers. And he goes, we do, you know, especially for their, you know, selling online. And then he used the example of that game, VVVVVVV, or is it WWWWW? You know, v, that game. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he used that as an example. And he goes, that's done pretty well. And you know, uh, so we're we're just in very preliminary talks. You know, we need to finish off, you know, the PC version and the Mac version first. 
And then we need to make sure we get Steamworks implementation. And, you know, selling on Steam, of course, would be our next goal after that. And then after that, we'll start exploring, you know, PlayStation 3, XBLA, as well as, uh, you know, the Wii U. Okay. And, of course, uh, the Ouya and, you know, whatever this Steam box will be. And uh, there's a, a new group that has, um, they've, uh, it was uh, one of the founders of Guitar Hero has started up a new company. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now. And he basically feels that, you know, uh, new cell phones, you know, Android-based ones, are strong enough to play games like ours. So he's really now just building a a controller and b uh, a service and c uh, an interface to your TV. So you would just take your phone and put it beside your TV, plug it in somehow, have it connect, and then run their you know Google Play whatever thing, and then in turn run the game on it, and then use the controllers via Bluetooth and just play it on your TV. It's a very interesting idea. It's pretty cool. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, most phones, well, I mean, the last, I think, two, maybe three phones I've had have all had HDMI ports on them, so I can't, it shouldn't be a big deal hooking up to your TV, and they're already Bluetooth enabled. So, Mm -hmm. that sounds good to me. Uh, But actually, I was going to ask you, so, so right now, there's no real, I shouldn't say no real plans, but you guys haven't started talking with, you know, Sony to get it on PSN or Microsoft to get it on XBLA? No, not yet. You know, we're just having preliminary talks with them right now. You know, we're, our, our number one goal is get the game done, first of all, and then we can start worrying about that. Okay. So even without, I guess, say, having a controller to play these games with, are, are, there, any pl- are there any plans to get Rush Brothers on the mobile platforms? I, I'd say yeah, because it's in it's built in Unity and it's very easy to port over from Unity to that that mobile platform. Um, I'm not sure what we'll have to do to optimize it to make it work on that. I think we'll be able to make it work pretty easily and run it a smooth you know FPS. We want to get you know at least you know 30 to 25 to 30 FPS on the iPhone or iPad. So that'll be something we'll have to look into. It'll probably be its own version that's not able to connect to the other versions just because it'll be mobile, but we will try to put all the content in from any other expansions we've done when we do it, you know, like an iOS version. So that way you get, you know, a bunch of stuff. It'll, it'll probably come out. I don't know how many months after we've, we finally released. So, <laughs> okay. So do you guys have any plans beyond rush brothers? Like, you know, are you already starting to plan some other games besides rush brothers? Or are you just solely focused on this right now? Well, we, you know, the, the concept of the company itself was uh, we've actually had three games in production. Uh, Rush Brothers, another one was a steampunk game called Steampunk Chronicles, and another game is a RTS Space 4X game called Marshall the Stars. And um, it's the company is basically structured much like how any venture capitalist would structure their investments. You know, you put some money here, you put some money here, you put some money here, you hope one of them turns into a Google or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so we do have the other games, but uh, Steampunk Chronicles, just as, um, you know, Rush Brothers really started picking up, we decided to put Steampunk Chronicles on hold right now and take those resources and start devoting them over to Rush Brothers. And the diff, we can show you some screenshots of like the different iterations of, Rush Brothers over the past year, and it's just crazy of what we started out with and where we are right now. It is so unbelievably different. Like, you'll be shocked. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really changed over time because the the initial design for it was, you know, light backgrounds, very square looking characters, barely any animation in them at all. And then, you know, and and there was no music based content whatsoever to speak of. Um, Then then we had a music based shooter game that was sort of side scrolling and we sort of merged that with Rush Brothers. And uh, then it started taking on this form of having, you know, light colored, very hand painted backdrops and dark foreground. And yeah, it was an interesting redesign. (laughs) Oh okay, so uh, I know you guys are you're trying to be you're trying to get greenlit right now. How far away are you from actually being greenlit on Steam? It greenlight seems to be very. I don't know how to say this. Uh, I don't see any real correlation with people voting for us. Like. The only stat we can see is how close we are percentage-wise to being within the top 100, which, you know, so we're like at 50% to being in the top 100. It, I, who knows? We could be greenlit this coming week, you know, or whenever they decide to do the next one because our game's going to be done. Yeah. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. like, uh, of the 21 games, only two of them have been released. Uh, you know, we've been getting these awesome reviews at Game Informer and other magazines and talking to you guys, and people love the game, and we had a lot of downloads also. So, you know, they're still trying to, as far as I'm concerned, Greenlight, they're still trying to, you know, figure out the process and how it works and things like that. But right now, I don't know what the correlation is with votes or anything like that in the least bit at all. I don't know if that matters or not. You know, obviously you want to build an audience. The more votes you have, people saying that they will buy your game. But then, you know, they've got other games up there like, you know, Postal 2, which came out like, what, five or six years ago. You know, that right. got greenlit right away, you know. So, I don't know. It's, it's, it's all kind of like magic to us, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, well, Valve themselves said that votes really just don't matter. It's it's all about just giving uh, developers a place to showcase their title, really. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, that works, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I guess, uh, let's say the, the game is finished and it's not greenlit yet on Steam. Would you, you know, I guess, go through Steam the normal way at that point? Or would you look to, uh, you know, get stuff published on other uh, digital distribution platforms like the Sora... There is no more Steam as the way it was. You know, everybody now has to go through Greenlight. And it doesn't matter, well, I'm sure EA and Epic Games and companies like that don't really have to. And the reason why is they already have a track record and they already have a, uh, you know, working relationship with them. But anybody new that's coming about, uh, you have to go through uh, Greenlight. And it's interesting because I'm always reading stories about, you know, people that have made games and, they want to release on Steam, so they have to go through the green light process, but their game is finished, so in turn they go out and they start selling their game already, whether it be through Origin or whether through Gamers Gate or Green Man Gaming or any of the other you know, uh, digital distribution partners out there. And then, uh, you know, like a month and a half later after they've gathered all these you know, uh, sales, you know, then they'll get accepted onto Steam. And then they have to go through the process of actually converting all those people that had bought elsewhere over to the Steam version. So sending out keys to them and things like that. And Valve, you know, to their credit, actually says, you know, uh, we'll give you free keys for everybody that's bought it already. But, you know, it's just, you know, I kind of wish Steam, Valve 
would separate Steamworks from Steam itself, you know, because we can't get access to Steamworks until we get greenlit. So uh, we had to build our own networking solution. And in turn, after we get, and, you know, it's very minimal, you know, you just connect with one other person and that's it. And we don't have leaderboards or anything like that. And, uh, you know, after we get access to Steamworks, we're tossing all that stuff out, you know, even though it costs us, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to make this stuff ourselves, we are just going to toss it out because Steamworks is like infinitely better. But, you know, the crux is, is that we can't get access to Steamworks. So even though we're going to be selling this game at the end of January on Gamefly, on Origin, on all these other distribution partners, and we're not going to be selling on Steam because we haven't been greenlit yet, you know, we're just going to have to go through this process that it seems like everybody else is having to do the same thing also. So, you know, if there's one thing that I would like to see Valve do is at least, you know, figure out some way to separate Steamworks from, you know, the green light process itself, because uh, it's it's causing issues, you know, obviously. Um, and uh, it is the default now, you know, it's not like there's anywhere else that we can go to get this. So, right. Actually, I, I was not aware that basically everything had to be green. I thought there was still an option for developers to, yeah, I guess, whatever the old process was, if you, however much you had to pay to get on Steam, that that was still available. So do you nope. yeah, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, it, it's, it will be good eventually. Right now we're having growing pains. You know, uh, like we were in the original Steam, you know, process starting, I guess, the beginning of the summer. And we would send them builds and, you know, we we were not at the level of quality and polish and awesomeness that we are at right now when we were showing them the game, you know, originally like, you know, three quarters of a year ago and then, you know, monthly updates. So, you know, we weren't able to make it through before green light started. Um, you know, there's a reason why green light is there and uh, there's nothing wrong with having the community, uh, you know, vote to have the games come up. It's just, you know, I think it has to be just a little bit more transparent to the developers and how does this process really work. Um, I think, you know, it might take another six months, it might take another year or so uh, where uh, this is going to be awesome for everyone involved. But right now it's kind of this weird, I can't remember what the term was, but I've just noticed these other developers that have already gone through this process that we're having to go through where you make your game, you don't get onto Steam, you have to sell it elsewhere, you get all these sales, and then you go over to Steam, then you get accepted in the Steam, and then you sell it on Steam. But you know, as soon as you get onto Steam, suddenly all those sales you did beforehand, you're doing ten times that amount suddenly on Steam. So it's just, you know, it's it's a little bit painful, but you know, it's kind of a rite of passage if anything. Yeah. I'd say I'd say it kind of reminds me of how Workshop uh, uh, felt when it first started up the Steam Workshop because originally there weren't very many games supported. It was pretty much just you know TF2 items, but people wanted to submit mod ideas for other games, and then eventually they got more inclusive and included more and more and. Uh, and and then you saw a lot of a lot of community participation come into these things. And you know, like I remember back when they started like the uh, the like make some not the sorry the, when they started the. Well, even if they'd done the make something on real contest today, they'd probably been able to do, you know do it through Workshop. Imagine how much more received those mods would have been, rather than having to put them on a 
on forums all over the place. Um, just, you know, there's little things like that. But like, uh, you know, when they had the poly count contest for, for Dota 2, just, just this week, I think they, they had the final votes come in. Uh, I saw a much larger amount of people making stuff than when they had the last poly count contest for TF2. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think, I think it's, it's similar to what Workshop does for mods. It's just now Greenlight is doing that for every developer, you know, everywhere. I mean, maybe maybe if you're already AAA and you can, you know, write a personal email to somebody there and, you know, they, they'll immediately, you know, wink and nod and say, okay, well, you can let you in, they'll let you in. But, you know, for most people, and, and I mean everybody, regardless of, you know, what type of cred they might have, Greenlight is the option you have to go through. And I think it, I think it works. It's, it's just, it's slow to, to take off in terms of popularity right now. Yeah. Okay. Actually, it's funny because I even when Greenlight came out, like I checked it out, but I really didn't, you know, participate in all that, all that much. You know, I think of Green, like you know, actually Greenlight like won the two games, one of them being yours. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just I, is it getting a lot of of, of attention? Like, like I guess it's hard to determine. Like, you know, the Steam player base versus how many people who are actually you know Greenlighting stuff. Like, our players actually taking the time to look through these games and hit okay. Because that's, well, that's not I, difficult to do. <laughs> I, I think, you know, uh, Greenlight, if anything, is competing with Kickstarter to a certain extent. You know, uh, people are browsing for games over there. And, you know, then suddenly you have to go over to Greenlight. And then you have to browse through games over there. I've noticed on Steam, you know, over the past you know couple of weeks, past month or so, Greenlight is way, way more par- prominent on the front page now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like uh, Microsoft in their Xbox Live indie game section. And I, I own two Xboxes. I don't even know where that is on the blades. I've never seen it, ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, talk about hiding something away. I, it's just, you know, I've never seen it, yet I know people that release games on it. But anyways, uh, no, I think Valve is, you know, becoming much better in, you know, trying to get their you know 42 million users to participate more within Greenlight. And you'll find after people, you know, do it at least once or twice, then they'll actually start going back in there because there's some real awesome quality titles that are coming out. And it's a great way to find out about stuff before, you know, you'll see it anywhere else because, you know, any of those titles that are in Greenlight, you know, they might not have the the options and the opportunities like we're having to talk with people like you or do interviews with Game Informer or we're talking with Polygon later later on later on this week. They just might not have those, you know, those opportunities, unfortunately. So if anything, I think it would be great for even the press to start, you know, you know, spending time within Greenlight and seeing what some of these new, you know, games are that are, you know, being, you know, first proposed and first showing off right there. Yeah. And another thing is, I think they also like looked at what was happening with, you know, iTunes and the iTunes Game Store and apps and stuff. And having that level of quality filter or filtration there for quality, I should say, uh, is amazing because it means that you know the the games that are actually you know really good and not just something that was slapped together by by you know a, a kid in his basement that's basically been put together in Game Maker in five minutes you know, isn't going to, to oversaturate and get, you know, flooded out. In fact, I think they put in a, a requirement. Now you have to donate $200 to get your game put onto to the green light. Uh, originally it was just, everybody could submit and it got really oversaturated very fast. 
I see that happening with the iTunes app store where you see so many games just get submitted every day that it just gets oversaturated, over flooded. You can't find quality because it's all jumbled and mixed together. Um, and you know, you, you just have to sort of guess at what games are going to be good or not. Whereas Greenlight's going to ensure that developers have to still work hard to make a quality title, uh, before it can be put on or allowed onto the steam store. So, you know, if it gets, per- if it gets put through, you know, it's quality. I like that. A lot. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I think Greenlight works well for PC because of the type of people that, I guess, are PC gamers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of PC gamers are, uh, I would say, really into their community and and what they do. Like, I, I mean, I know people who, you know, j- visit the Steam forums on a daily basis just to, you know, find out what's going on, what people are talking about. Do you think something like Greenlight would work just as effectively on, like, let's say, uh, Xbox Live or PSN or even uh, the the Apple, you know, App Store. Well, like like in the case of the App Store, I mean with with PSN and Xbox Live, there's, you know, a big upfront cost for publishing. It's big. It's so big that most people wouldn't try to put a title on there unless they already know it's good. Though if you look at, you know, the Xbox Live indies, there's a game on there called Hot Potato, for instance, where you just throw the controller around the room and that's it. I've actually uh, played that game. Yeah, and, and <laughs> it's amazing because it's like that, you know, that person who submitted that, they paid a lot of money, you know, to get that on there. So, yeah, it's it's something I'd, I'd just say is, you know, that that's already their filter there. But, like, if you look at, like, iTunes, if they had a section that was, like, you know, titles that are – you already kind of have a filter for quality that lets you see what apps are top rated. But using just a five-star system – is kind of limited. You know, you, you don't you don't get the full experience. You don't get to see, you know, what titles have been approved by, you know, people of certain demographics, et cetera, like that. So, you know, if you want to find the type of games you want to really buy, you have to look at review sites and that sort of thing. I think it'd be fair if they still let everybody submit an app, but I think it'd be nice if there was a section for that and then titles which were promoted in, in a higher capacity than just getting stars were were put into a place that was of, a, of an elevated Know, area like you know like one of the one of the first apps i put onto the store uh which was literally just balls on strings clacking together became the number one app and why you know <laughs> you have to ask why because it, it, it was such a simple idea it was something you can you know it's a, a, a desktop you know office toy you can get anywhere but people were eating it up and you know the zippo lighter was another one that was incredibly popular um and you know there, there really is no understanding as to why those things become popular it's just that people download them a lot and because they get into the most downloaded section they get more and more downloaded and it creates a snowball effect but you know what about anybody around that time who made you know a really quality game they'd be over you know they'd be completely overshadowed by the zippo lighter or or you know balls and strings because they, they don't separate the categories enough there's not enough you know searching values and again the five star system is just not refined enough. They had if they had something like Greenlight, it'd be a lot better, I think. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the the, the app store, uh, I know I, I read an article. It has to be at least six months, maybe actually a little bit farther than that. That talked about you know how as a service, uh, some developers, not necessarily game developers, but like app developers, they can buy services from these companies that will get a whole bunch of people to actually five star your game. Mm-hmm. And they pay these people like I guess ten cents per game they five star, and they give them a list of games they need five starred. Yeah. And do you think, like, I guess, if if Greenlight, well, I shouldn't say Greenlight comes big enough because it is it is a big deal already. But do you think we'll we'll ever get to that point where you know 
companies are, are paying people to green light their stuff. And then how could you possibly stop that from happening if it does happen? The, well, the, the beauty of that comes from the fact that, like, like Valve said, the thumbs ups don't matter. So if somebody's actually paying money to have thumbs ups, they're wasting their money because your game could be the number one game on, on Greenlight and it's still not going to get Greenlight until Valve ultimately makes the decision. They play it. They see it's playable. They like it and they see enough fan comments. They, they like to see actual you know Steam users who are registered thumbing it up. And here's the kicker. You, know, you can't thumb up a game on Steam unless you have a registered Steam account with a purchased game on there. So all those people who are thumbing it up and being paid to thumb it up, if they don't have a regular gaming history and all they're doing is thumbing up games and they're not doing anything, that, that type of suspicion, I think, would, would, you know, Steam would be able to catch on pretty quick. Okay, so uh, the, the big difference is that Valve has actually paid attention, whereas with the App Store, eh. They would, they would never, yeah, they, they would never have the manpower to properly police the App Store. I mean, if you look at the apps that get approved, and even the Windows 8 Store doesn't have, like, they they released was there was a game that came out on there yesterday called Zelda Game Game, and it's literally just, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that. It's just wow. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's 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 some people that just need to learn that you know there's there's better ways of policing your your store, and one way to do it is through using your customer base to promote, and that's what Greenlight's all about. So I like that. Okay. Yeah. I actually that's one platform I didn't even think about Windows 8. Uh, have you guys considered, you know, doing anything for the Windows 8 platform because it, it it appears that a lot of developers are kind of like, "Eh, we'll wait and see what happens." It it would be easy it'd be easy to do, but there's no buddy buying games on there yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's no reason to go after a market that isn't there yet. You know, we'll be there when we need to be there, but we don't need to be there right now. You gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so like I, I recently had my computer crash and I had to upgrade to Windows 8 and I've never gone on the you know that store or anything because I just go you know use Steam and use my desktop for everything. So that's true. I mean, I I actually loaded up one of my laptops when Windows 8 just to check it out, and from a performance standpoint, everything's fine. But I really only went into that store one time just to see what it looked like, and then I left. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles uh, they're really going to run into. So I guess from, from a development standpoint, you really don't see a problem with Windows 8. It's just the fact that there there is there's nobody there. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it, again, it's very easy to make a game for that because all you do is submit the EXE and then it's on there. You know, <laughs> it's we're only using Unity. If we were suddenly to switch over to like Unreal Engine 3.5 or the forthcoming 4.0, or if we're doing something custom ourselves, you know, then I'm sure it could be an issue, you know. But for what we're doing for Rush Brothers right now, it wouldn't be an issue. It'd be probably pretty easy for us to get it over there. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's good though, because sometimes you know, depending on what sites you t- you, you you watch. Or uh, I guess who, which developers you hear talking. Some make it sound like Windows 8 is just this atrocity to develop for, and it's terrible for gaming. And some are just like, like, like you guys, like you know, it's not bad, but there's nobody playing games there, so we're not gonna really put the resources forward. Well, I think one of the big things is that you know, Windows 8 is now a store, and they weren't before. And I think the other stores that are out there don't like that aspect. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why you hear some companies talking about it. I don't know. You know, I'm just kind of guessing. But, you know, yeah. it's uh, 
it's very much, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's very much like, uh, you know, EA not having their games over on Steam anymore, you know? Uh, they couldn't come to whatever, you know, sort of, uh, you know, they just weren't able to work together for whatever reason. And so EA went and built their own, uh, you know, built their own uh, origin. And, you know, uh, it's funny because if you had have said to me, like, Nine months ago, you know, if you were going to rank them, how would you rank them? I'd be like, well, first of all, it would have to be Steam. And then second of all, it would be Impulse, which is owned by GameStop. And then third of all, it would be blah, blah, blah. And then like five or six, it would be like Origin. And, you know, I've used Origin and going all the way back to the EA downloader. And what they have done over the past six months is unbelievable. It is amazing. You know, like... They have gone from like sixth place to second place. And if there's anybody who's going to be able to take on Steam, it's Origin. Oh, okay. Now, I, I think a lot of people um, would say, well, because of the exclusives, this is how Origin is getting their user base. So it's kind of, it might be kind of unfair. Would you, would, you say, would you say that or be like, that's just the way it is, you know? People are using Origin because they want to, not because the games are exclusive. Well, it's no different than talking about a PlayStation 3 versus an Xbox 360. You know, I bought my PlayStation 3 so I could play Killzone and Uncharted and Little Big Planet. And I bought my Microsoft 360 so I could play games like Halo and Gears of War and other exclusives. So it's exactly the same thing as what those guys do. That's a good answer. That's probably the best answer yeah, I've heard uh, regarding that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, th- I, think, I think EA, you know... They had, you know, they have every opportunity to sell the game wherever they want to sell it. If they wanted to make their own store and try and compete, I think, you know, more power to anybody wanting to do that. I mean, if you look at like the game Hawken that just recently came out, they're not going on Steam. They're not going on Origin. They're just going to sell off their own website. Um, another really the most popularly played game on the planet right now, League of Legends, just sells off their own website. Uh, and Mojang, you know, does their own thing. Mojang doesn't plan to put uh, Minecraft on Steam anytime soon. So, yeah, they just they just do whatever they want to do. <laughs> But okay. but yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I think I'm out of questions, Nick. I'm sorry. I didn't even mean to ask you guys all those questions. You just kept answering them and making, <laughs> giving me more questions. Right, Nick, you have any other questions? No, I think I think uh, you guys addressed everything I had questions about. Hmm. That's great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on to the show today. I definitely didn't expect to, expect to keep you guys for this long. So I, if you had something to do, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Uh, no, you know, thank you very much for the opportunity to come on here and tell you about our game and have some great conversation. And as a little treat, I emailed you off uh, four screenshots showing the development of Rush Brothers over the past year. And you guys are more than welcome to, uh, you know, put that up on your site also. Well, thanks for that. I will definitely put that up when we post uh, the podcast. Uh, so if, if people want information on Rush Brothers, uh, your website is myxyla.com or myxyla.com. Yep. Correct. That's where they can download the demo. And as we said, sometime this week, you know, we're just finishing it up right now. We're going to be releasing the multiplayer demo. It'll probably be out by the time, you know, the podcast uh, hits the waves. And... Uh, you know, if you you know if your if your fan base likes it, please come and vote for us on Steam. You know, like go to Greenlight and give us an upvote, and also favorite us. Also, we will love you for it. Yeah, it doesn't take that long. It's it's really an easy process, not painful at all. 
we'll uh, on the for the podcast on the podcast we'll definitely put a link uh, to both your website, uh, the demo and the green light. Because uh, if you know, I'm pretty. I, I know a lot of people that will enjoy it just as much as I did. I totally think it, it's a game worthy of coming to Steam. And with everything that we talked about today, I'm actually way more excited about the game now that it's it's more than just what I thought it was. It's gonna be it's gonna be a lot more. It sounds like it's gonna be a really good time when you guys are all done with it. You know, I am a very I've been in this industry for so long and you know I'm kind of embittered and somewhat jaded to a certain extent and it's really hard to please me. You know <laughs> like ask any of the team that in the least bit at all. You know, I am you know, I'm, I'm very critical of certain things, and uh, I don't really pass out accolades too freely in the least bit at all. But even the latest version of the multiplayer demo, I sit down and I start playing it, and I'm just amazed at the quality of what we've created and just how awesome a game it really is. And, you know, now it's really the hard part because, you know, the reality is, is that five good indie games come out every week, yet nobody in the world knows about them. And the reason why is they just don't have someone like me getting out there and banging on the doors and like, you know, forcing people to give us interviews. Not that I forced you guys, but still, <laughs> <laughs> I am forcing lots of other people, though, and I'm pulling in favors and pulling in strings, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, uh, I... I'm just amazed every time I play the game. It's just awesome. And as I said, I'm very hard to please. So, you know, I know the world is going to love this game when we finally get it out there. Yeah, with, with everything that you talked about, I can totally see this becoming a big like thing on YouTube where, you know, you, you see a whole bunch of vids for uh, Rush Brothers speed runs and, you know, different, you know, through the different mods and things like that. I can... I'm, mm -hmm. I'm I'm looking forward to it because I, I love things like that. I love game communities. Like whenever there's a community and people getting together, uh, it, it help, you know, whenever you do the level creator or you just like you know people posting their times like or, or their ghost data. Like here's my ghost file. See if you can beat it. I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely love I love speed running. I love let's play videos. I love watching other people play let's play videos. And you know most most games I've worked on in the past. I usually get so sick of looking at them after a while. You know, I'm like, just, I'm just completely jaded and don't want to watch other people play it. This is one of the few titles I've ever worked on where because the, the, it's been designed from the ground up to have infinite replayability with the sounds, the music, the racing features, everything like that. It's the first time I've ever been able to actually sit down and look at a level that I've played 10,000 times and watch other people play through it and race on it and actually have a good time watching them. You know, like, like I almost want to like pop some popcorn, just sit back and watch people do let's plays of it. Cause it's really entertaining to see them play the game a lot. I, I'm surprised that I'm, I'm treating it like a spectator sport from my perspective. I actually like watching it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm at the, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I just had a friend over that's a game developer and he was like playing it. And I don't know why he just wasn't jumping correctly. And just this irresistible urge of like <laughs> grabbing the joystick out of his hand and just like, let me do it for you. This is how you do it. Come on. You've done this before. Was, that's just me. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of understand how you're watching the same person. You just make the same simple mistake over and over again. It's like, get it together, man. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, I absolutely loved you guys. You know, coming here and thank you very much for you know talking about your game and then I guess just things in general. Because whenever you know, you we can make a lot of speculations being you know in game journalism. But then when you're actually talking to developers about how they feel about certain things, it provides a light that you you know you, you can't get unless you talk to somebody who's actually in the mix. 
So thank you very much for providing, uh, you know, shining some light on some of those topics that we talked about. Awesome. Yeah. Once again, thanks for having us, guys. Very much appreciated. It's no problem. Yeah, thank you. No problem at all. So, um, yeah, we are going to get back to the rest of the show at this point. And uh, once, thank you very much for coming. And we will, we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on Rush Brothers. You'll definitely see a, more on Mash those buttons. So, just uh, keep an eye for that. Actually, what's your Twitter before we go? Good. Uh, what is it? Is it Rush Brothers? I think it is R U S H B R O S. Okay, so yeah. you just uh, follow Rush Brothers on Twitter, and is the same thing for Facebook. I think it is. I'd have to look into that though, but I can send you off the email, and we can put that as links also. Up, uh, no problem at all. So we'll go ahead and do that. Most of the action, just to let you know, though, actually goes on uh, on the Steam page right now. You know, we're in touch with the users all the time. We're taking their concerns into consideration and letting them know how progress is coming, things like that. Okay, that's great. So we'll uh, we'll okay, we'll put that in one of the priority then. <laughs> all right, great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And uh, here we go on with the rest of the show. All right. So once again, that was Mark Chandler. Uh, senior producer and Ian Boswell, lead uh, designer for Zala Entertainment on uh, you know for Rush Brothers, and uh, you know besides talking about the game, which now after the interview I'm even more interested in, uh, they actually did have some interesting things to say about you know Greenlight and Windows 8. So Nick, what what, what did you think about you know I guess what we we're talking about regarding Greenlight? I don't know. I just thought it was interesting uh, in in some ways. Uh, as far as I guess a, a developer to be, um, I guess especially with Windows 8, we tend to hear how, how I guess you know Gabe is sort of viewed as the the opinion of the industry almost, and as you know, not being a developer, we're not necessarily cognizant of the fact that, that his opinion doesn't represent everybody. That he does have his own agendas pushing steam and whatnot uh, that uh, other people disagree with. And I think it was enlightening to hear somebody, you know, say that they're they're not uh, they're not they're not as anti Windows 8 as uh, some of the other media outlets would have uh, us believe indie developers are. Yeah, I I did think that was interesting. I mean I've always well, I should say I always said, but uh, you know, I've said a couple times I've re- I haven't found a problem, uh, I guess, operationally with Windows 8. My big problem with it is the actual interface, which I think is going to be the biggest hurdle. But, you know, it, I guess it's good to, you know, I shouldn't say it's good to know, but it's just nice that there are varying opinions out there. And, you know, I, I don't want to say Gabe has, uh, you know, bad intentions, but, he, you know, it does have Steam, like, you know, the Windows 8 store, I guess, does put places like Steam and Gamers Gate and, you know, what the Blizzard store in danger when they're selling their own product, uh, you know, right through Windows 8. But I, I really don't think that's Microsoft's focus. Actually, it kind of feels like it's really not Microsoft's focus because of how poorly it's it's doing right now. I think I, I read a statistic uh, last week that only about 1,500 games are on the store. The Windows 8 store right now, and that's like, you know, includes all the small games too. Like it's just not a very uh, popular place right now. But then, um, Windows 8 isn't really all that popular right now. It's gonna definitely take some time to grow. Cool. But I, I was more interested in this what they said about Greenlight. Uh, you know, and it, it, I, I guess because there was some new information presented to me because I did not know that 
green light, like there was no way to go through the old method anymore. Like, you know, I guess the old approval process, like unless you're EA or Ubisoft or Activision, you have to go through green light now. Well, I think, I think that's the kind of thing that because Greenlight's still a fairly new process, it seems like they're still working the kinks out. And it's just – it's sort of this weird space that we're in where, you know, as, he, as Mark was saying, the developers have to go and sort of sell their game elsewhere before they can come back to Steam. And so it's it, – it, it's it, it almost – it's very counterintuitive. And I, I expect that given enough time that this will all sort of, you know, sort of square itself away. But, yeah, it's, it's uh, it makes – I mean, Greenlight seems like it, it seems like it's a great way to sort of get games out in the community and, and foster, you know, development and that stuff, stuff of that nature. And yet, it seems that unless your game hits a minimum threshold of interest, not necessarily dictated by votes, but whatever you know criteria Steam you know d- d- determines you know behind the scenes, then you know your game just has no traction. And it's, and so it, it's great for it's great for Steam because they're guaranteed once a, once they approve a game, they know we've already got this many sales effectively in the bank. It's just getting there really is it's it's really a bizarre process. Yeah, you know, I I thought there would have been on the developer side of things there would have been more of a concrete like hey, you need x you need x amount of votes to get you you know pushed through green light, but according to you know, well, I think Mark said that it was. You can only see how how close or what percentage you are in the top 100. You know, I get the feeling like this process. It reminds me a bit of the uh, the, the Mass Effect three ending, where you could get the ending by doing a certain amount of co-op play or by doing a certain amount of actions in game, and there was there there was. Clear, there was some sort of equation that determined what kind of ending you got, but no one really understood it, and it was some mash of all these all these factors that com- contributed to that. And it almost feels like the same thing. It's like maybe if you get a certain number of votes, you can get that, or maybe if you only have a certain number of votes, but you sold elsewhere, that it's all it's the same kind of process. That it's just this black box where you've got all these inputs about interest in your game and sales going in, and at some point you don't you don't know when it's going to ding, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're available for Greenland. Yeah, I'm curious to see how they're going to improve the process. I mean, unfortunately, I think from, um, I don't know, a user perspective, or at least the side that we're looking at, we won't really see the changes. So maybe as we continue to interview more developers, we can kind of see, you know, what changes are made or, you know, after we... Huh? Is that going to be our mission to just interview developers so we can kind of parse out what exactly Steam is doing? It could be a submission. This could be one of our side <laughs> missions. <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm pretty sure we'll hear about changes. Like especially if you read, you know, journals like Develop Online or GamesIndustry.biz, we'll hear about changes that are going on uh, on Steam Greenlight with developers. So, I don't know, maybe just you know, swing back around the mark. Like, hey, how do you, how does this affect you? Does it make things better? Does it make things worse? You know, who knows? Because you know, like a user. Because I mean, from a user perspective, it looks like you. You give it the thumbs up. You're actually helping, but, yeah. but you know, based off of what you know, what uh, you know, Mark and Ann said, it doesn't really sound like that because they don't even know what what how many they would need. They, I, you really can't even make a target or a goal. Yeah, you know, to see okay, well, we need to get we need to build up this much interest and get this many people, you know, you know, th- you know, giving us the green light in order to get our game on Steam. So, but I just thought it was very interesting that the, the the old way is completely gone now. 
And I don't know. I don't know. Well, I guess I guess it's a good thing because now people can't get their their games forced onto Steam almost. But at the same time, if a, if a game was bad, I mean, I just don't buy it. <laughs> you know, I guess that's what the, that's what game reviews are for. But who knows? I don't yeah. know. What were we gonna say? I was just gonna say, I think if a game is bad, they can always be like, "Well, you guys approved it on Greenlight, so you should have known better." Fan base that thinks a game sucks. Like, yeah, I don't think that's gonna happen, especially <laughs> with all the Daisy stuff happening right now. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, for those who don't know, uh, I because Daisy was a was a Greenlight game. Oh, it's not not Daisy. Sorry, the War Z was a Greenlight game. Have you been keeping up on that, Nick? Not that much. Well, yeah, the the War Z was a green light game, and somebody feel free to correct me if, if I actually am wrong about that. And it came out, and it said it had all these features, but none of those features are in the game. Like it was blatantly false advertising. Like basically, people were paying to play like an alpha version or alpha build of this game, and finally today, uh, Valve took it down. Wow. So yeah, that was uh pretty interesting. Cool. But yeah, we, we definitely thank the guys from Zyla Entertainment come by, uh, both Mark Chandler and Ian Boswell. I highly suggest that everybody check out uh, Rush Brothers, the demo, so you can see exactly what we were talking about. You know, play with the regular music, then play it with your own, and, you know, you can definitely see uh, the potential of the game. Actually, by the time people listen to this, more than likely the multiplayer demo. I think I saw that that was actually up already. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Um, let's just check it out real quick. But it, the multiplayer demo uh, should be available soon. If I, not right now, I'm going to the site now to check it out. But my internet's being a little slower than I can talk. <laughs> so that's not... Well, actually, there we go. Um, it's coming up. I, so, uh, yep, multiplayer demo download. So it is definitely there um uh, nick sometime this like i guess for the next couple of days maybe we should do like a a mash cast plus or something with us playing it yeah yeah i'm really curious to see how the multiplayer goes because that's i mean that that seems like one of the big features is the the whole competitive slash cooperative nature of the game and and uh so far i mean it, it's it's fun for a speed run you know as a solo player but that's yeah i'm really curious about that yeah i mean like i'm I would actually be content with ghost data, but like actually doing it, doing it live with another person adds a whole nother layer of tension. Well, I had fun with my own personal ghost data, but it was just funny because I kept dying in all the same spots. So I just see my ghost just reappearing right near where I kept reappearing. And so I didn't really learn a lot by watching how I sucked before because I was still sucking. That's kind of the point. You're supposed to learn from your mistakes. Yeah, no, I didn't really do that. Yeah, great job, Nick. Yeah, but the 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 live multiplayer, I think, will add a whole another layer of tension, which should be uh, pretty entertaining. So uh, we'll see. But yeah, I'll definitely check check out the regular demo. Check out the multiplayer demo, which actually might be in one package now because I only see the one. Yeah. But uh, definitely check it out. Highly suggest it. Uh, you know, give it a chance. It's only a couple. Well, the regular demo is only a couple levels. I think the he said the multiplayer demo is gonna add two more levels. So, uh, after yeah, the, least, yeah, I think so. So we have to, uh, you know, we'll, we'll definitely check that out. And I'm curious to see more of the, not necessarily, well, yeah, more of the traps, but also more of what works with the music. 
you know, like what what happens on beat because you know platforms and you know in the in the demo we played platforms were moving in correlation with the music, so you know you kind of have to be in rhythm. Uh, and I, don't know, I just I like games like that, <laughs> so I mean, that's why I was a fan of like sound shapes because you have to do things in rhythm there too. See, I feel like there could be a whole like after market. Uh, like, like you know, for, for for MP3s that would basically allow you to sort of, they'd be timed such that as long as you go through the stage, all like the beat is so slow, you don't really have to worry about the traps because they're just that slow. You just walk right through them. Or, uh, or even then, I, I think there was, there should be an MP3 for the uh, the second level in the demo. That's all like the Super Mario Brothers stage. I want to see somebody take the song from one one and the song from one two and put them together and do a little MP3 so you can play through that stage listen to the original music why would you do that because well which one the first or the second well play it with a (laughs) play it with a really slow song because then it makes the game really easy presumably you and your kind (laughs) (laughs) i'm telling you man maybe slow moving traps are what i consider fun (laughs) you're a loser nick Put a little spice in your life, man. God. <laughs> but, um, and like I said, we, we really appreciate uh, Mark and Ian coming down from Zyla Entertainment. Uh, their website is uh, myzyla.com, and that's where you can grab the demo. Uh, there's They also have two Twitter accounts. There's the Rush Brother Twitter account, which is uh, twitter.com slash rushbrothers, and there's also twitter.com slash my Zyla, which is uh, sorry, it's like you want to say Zyla, like you're gonna know how to spell it. It's X Y L A, so it's my X Y L A X Y L A dot com and uh, Twitter dot com slash uh, my X Y L A. So definitely check them out. Follow them on Twitter so you can you know keep up with what's happening in the game, and most importantly, uh, you know, especially if you like the demo. You know, give them the thumbs up on Steam Greenlight so we can see this thing uh, on Steam. So, yes, uh, that's probably what they need the most right now. I would say, you know, Steam Greenlight, Nick? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, definitely check them out on Steam Greenlight. Give them the thumbs up. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can also, well, you can't catch us on Steam Greenlight, but you can catch us <laughs> on uh, Facebook, which is facebook.com slash mash those buttons. Twitter.com slash MTB site. Uh, you know we're on SoundCloud. You're probably listening to it there. Uh, but it's SoundCloud.com slash smash those buttons. We are on Stitcher Smart Radio, uh, where you can listen on your iOS, Android or Android device. And also you can stream there now too. Once again, like I said before, iTunes is working once again. So you can subscribe on iTunes. And uh, we're also on YouTube.com slash mash those buttons. Where uh, right now we have season one of Mash That, and uh, one of the aftermash is up right now. Uh, season two of Mash That we're looking to start it up again in February, um, and we're looking to do another aftermash on a uh, uh, on on a game that I think people would appreciate it, and, and we'll deliver more information on that uh, next time. Uh, but yeah, you can. Uh, you can you'll catch us again uh next week we will be recording <laughs> next week uh i think we're going to talk about you know kind of kind of do like a year wrap up and you know what we expect from 2013 if we survive this friday that is <laughs> so 
Oh, uh, we'll see. That's a bad joke by now, isn't it, Nick? Uh, it'll be a worse joke next week. That is true. Nick is the king of bad jokes <laughs> for, for, the, for the new listeners, so I, I usually go by him to gauge what's a good joke, what's a bad joke. <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have more of the uh, the regular crew on next week. And uh, soon uh, we will have an interview with Dane Saint, so look out for that as well. Dane Saint from Cypher Prime. So, um, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, Once again, I cannot thank Mark and Ian from, you know, Xyla Entertainment for, you know, coming and giving us information on their game and their thoughts on a few different things. Uh, So uh, that's it for today, guys, and we'll catch you next week. Have a great weekend. Merry Christmas. Or whatever you celebrate. (laughs) <laughs> you gotta you gotta be all inclusive nick there's all oh, i guess happy boxing day i'm trying to think what else is happening over the next week i don't know i don't <laughs> i don't i don't keep up with the holidays <laughs> 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 all right see you guys have a good see you.